Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a truly elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Um, joined today uh, by Paul and Ross. Um, and we're, 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 This is a Q&A episode, but I kind of renamed it the other week, The Muscle Mentors Perspective. And we're literally doing it where we just talk through a few different things. Um, and it saves having to do loads of numbered Q and A's to the point where we'll eventually be doing Q and A two thousand three hundred and forty seven. No, but the uh, but yeah. So we we amassed between the three of us some pretty cool questions. Um, when you say between the three of us, do you mean me and Ross? Yeah, pretty much. I didn't get that many. <laughs> Absolutely brutal. <laughs> I did get a few. Um, the uh, but I mean that comes when you don't post on social media very regularly. So, I mean, mate, you're on a roll two and two days at the moment. Two yeah. and two days. I'm not going to do one today though because I'm not uh, definitely not going to try and do seven days a week. Well, lasted. We'll see Luke in here. Yeah, we'll see him in 2022, everybody. Yeah, 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 you can wait for that one. I mean, it was a good post. I think quit while I'm ahead. Wonderful post. I enjoyed it a lot. The blind man porn review. Sensational. <laughs> anyway, um, so. Let's kick this off. We had a, a relatively decent question. Um, <laughs> relatively decent question. Um, As opposed to the shit questions. Zero <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, uh, uh, thought process in what you say. <laughs> a cool, a cool question in the uh, around closed kinematic chain leg. I mean, Paul, you had it on yours. So if you want to read it out, and we'll kick it off. You would, you would say that without me having it up on the thing. Yeah, yeah, the All right. So the question from Yannick. Uh, reasons for pre-exhausting a closed kinematic chain leg press with a leg extension. Would that lead to less quads being used, presumably, therefore, I think he means, on the leg press once we get to the leg press? So my question for the community, and because there's no one on the podcast, we'll have to put this out there and then come back to this in the future, is do you understand what a closed kinematic chain is? And we'll await to see what the response is. See you on the next podcast. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> this could be a podcast of us three giggling to ourselves, people listening to this being like, what a bunch of wankers. Okay. Uh, but no, so should we, I mean, Paul, you, you'll probably be able to give a relatively decent expert. We did that on, so if, if people want a more comprehensive three-way explanation between James, Paul, myself, go to the mechanics roundtable that like Paul, James and I did a few, a few weeks ago or months ago. Um, but Paul, can you give us a quick one? Yeah, so well, we've got a few different things. So closed chains are a series of connected joints that... And use visuals, remember, because we're on YouTube as well. I could, but then I'm going to have to run away over there to grab my car. I mean, I can. Yeah. Amuse the listeners slash readers. There's no readers. <laughs> uh, amusing fact, that is not a model skeleton in the background. That's Paul's flatmate. There we go. What did you say? <laughs> 
That's not a model skeleton in the background. That's your flatmate. Absolutely, yeah, it is. Bad times for them. Lockdown was hard. All right, so we've got, if you can't see this, I've got Meccano because I use Meccano for everything these days. That sounded more questionable than I meant that to. Uh, right, so what we've got here, if you can't see this, it, I would recommend probably watching the video on this if you can, if you're just listening to this, it'll be worth seeing it. But we've got what's called a constrained closed chain in my hands. It's got four joints that are constrained to a single plane. So you can think of a plane as being like a sheet of paper. There is nothing on here that shoots up and off the paper. Everything is in the same line, what we call the same plane. And in a constrained closed chain, I can move every other joint in the object by only having a control or a motor or muscular output at one joint. So if I, and I could pick any of these joints and what it will do is create repeated predictable motion, the exact same angular change in all of the other joints, no matter which one I pick, there is no choice for all of the other joints than to move in the way they are constrained to by the structure that they're in. And that's called a constrained closed chain and you'll see that in this Meccano. If we then took and added just a fifth extra joint, I now have a closed chain. It is in the same plane. There is nothing disappearing off at different angles to what I have in my hand here. But if I start moving this one singular joint, a whole bunch of weird stuff can start happening at these other ones. That doesn't mean I can create guaranteed, predictable, the exact same each and every time motion of all the other joints, which in that case would mean that I would need more than one motor. If I had my constrained closed chain again, I could put an engine, muscular output or whatever I'm using for this robot that I might have made over here. I could put a motor on this one joint and I wouldn't need any on the others. I could control all the output from the others just by here. That'd be a bit like saying I could control my, my elbow output and my wrist output through just my shoulder motors. It'd be akin to saying that. Whereas in the non-constrained closed chain, that's no longer the case. I need at least something else controlling some of these other joints in order to make them act in a predictable manner in the way that I would want to. And I think there's a, actually a big debate as to whether we really have any constrained closed chains in the human body. Like even when we start talking on that I press, I think yeah, the, the we've got, yeah, the fact that we've even, and we, we spoke about this as, as Luke said in the previous podcast, but the fact that we, we've got these hip joints that are ball and socket, like all it would take is for you to be half a degree outside the plane and that constrained closed chain no longer applies. You would need something to at least maintain the plane in order to keep it in that, which then changes the, the whole kind of thing. Yeah. So that's worth saying at least. But yeah. And the fact that like knee valgus occurring and stuff that, you know, pronation of the foot that is going to change relationships. To, I mean, it's, it's, it's harder to, if you yeah. depend on how you're looking at it, if you're looking down the human body as someone was doing it, so from like head to toe, um, standing behind someone, it would be harder to apply. If you're looking like side on, maybe it's easier to be like, oh yeah it's a closed chain because i can't really see what's happening as other planes but again like that's that's kind of probably departing from the point somewhat but what we might be able to say is that okay we we, we can say we've got a closed chain that we just can't say it's a constrained closed chain potentially or we, we've definitely got maybe the, the possibility for using certain joints more to move other joints than we would see in other situations. So if we do have something like a closed chain, and what I think the question is getting at is, in this closed chain, can my glutes extend my knee? I think that's what he's kind of getting at. And okay, so I mean, how would that function? It's like, well, again, this would be worth seeing and, and drawing some kind of Meccano possible stuff out with. But if I could move and contract this hip, if this is all locked into position, as I extend the hip, the knee will start traveling in an arc that will start extending at the knee, which pushes this thing up. I still think you need some force output to do that. I don't think it's a, a strict um, closed chain in the sense that there's a chance I could extend my hip, my leg will get to here, and I don't know what this load might then do to the structure of, of what's going on at that particular point, especially if that knee rolls inwards or anything. I mean, the way to fully measure it, and this would probably be the only way someone could ever confirm it, is to take some of the motors out of the system. Yeah. And that would require putting someone or a corpse on a, uh, on a yeah. leg, like 
like dissecting it, so removing the quad and then being like, can I still produce motion? Uh, if it's a corpse, you don't even you wouldn't even need to dissect it because the corpse is dead, so it has no electrical. Yeah, I mean you can literally yeah put a. a what you can then do is I don't know create some device that extends the hip for the corpse. This is really super <laughs> likely to happen science, uh, and then see just what does it do if I just have a motor of the hip only on my dead guy, and and that would be an interesting one. I think I think it, we could. All... It's debatable. I mean, it, it and it would change potentially depending on the amount of load you're using. So if you're using a load where the body goes. No, I require, even though this is closed chain and movement can happen, but I require output from both my quad and my hip to just move this plate. It's probably not really the same sort of situation than if it was the plate. Well, even saying like your body doesn't let you produce hip extension without some activation of hip flexion. So mm -hmm. what makes us think, okay, we could just create knee extension with just hip extension. I can't create hip extension with just hip extension for the most That's part. A, for those that want to look into that further, you should look up. Lombard's paradox, which is quite good. Luke enjoys Lombard's paradox. Uh, but I think it, it's an interesting question nonetheless. And I actually think we're going to end up saying, we don't know. Yeah. I, I think the way we'd have to start exploring it is with the use of some kit to test it. Mm. So we'd want some EMG that was well applied. We want some MOXIE sensors and yeah. start looking individually at like what's happening when we go through that. Does it do that? Yeah. I'd say if we were, because reminding the question was like, if we pre exhaust a closed kinematic chain leg press with a leg extension do we get less more or less quad coming into the leg press so do does the body then respond by going oh i'm going to use more quadriceps on it or like quadricep on this which is like and there's two ways we can look at that but ultimately to be able to empirically test it we need to be able to measure stuff going on in the tissue whether it's looking at stuff from the emg so what's the how's the nervous system behaving um and then also what's the 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 metabolic status of the tissue or like the oxygen status of the tissue in terms of like these moxie sensors that can measure the amount of oxygen saturation which gives us an indication of how much energy and substrates is that tissue having to use and even going it'll be different probably person to person because we see if you guys aren't familiar with Jacques from the exercise design lab he does loads of stuff where we have a little explore myself and luke and, and some others look at this weekly and go like okay it does seem to be different your body can cycle through different activation patterns to some degree when you're under certain types of load so it might be that some people do in fact use less quad output when they go through this and it might be that others that's not true for at all. It might even vary for you across time. Yeah. You can look at it from the question of, you know, if we just think like mechanistically, if we've done a leg extension and we go into a movement and go, well, these, I've just tanked my quads, you know, so there's not really that much left in them, let's say in this scenario that we're talking about. And now I'm going to the situation where my body has this these other routes available. Logically, it would actually, a lot of people use the pre-exhaust technique to get more quad, for instance. But if I do quad leg extension before leg press, I'll then feel my leg, my quads more when I do the leg press because there's some fatigue already in them. And that may be the case. And whether that sensation equates to more output, that's a jump in some respects. So, you know, people sensations not always mean that tissue is working harder. Like that's something you, again, you'd have to measure to confirm. And I think they have done studies on that. So there is some evidence on there, but the, but like, you could also look at it from the flip side and be like, well, if I've exhausted this tissue and my body's got this ability to use more hip extensors, like in the form of the glutes, the hamstrings, the ductor magnus, why would it give me more quad? We could just use more of the guys that have more energy available. Like, well, I mean, we haven't even mentioned that which what leg press. <laughs> yeah, I really meant to say that. Like, what you're actually utilizing is going yeah. massive in like you know, but there are leg presses that are just going to be by their very nature, regardless of where you put your foot, is going to be predominantly hip extension, yeah. and then there's presses that are the same, you know, on the opposite side. You know, so you have to kind of be able to look at that. I think objectively it makes sense. You know, the concept of it is quite, is quite sound. I just don't think we have a way to prove it right now. Yeah, it's definitely a one that would be cool to explore with some kit. And then, but and the individuality between it would be insane because it's that that behavior of the neuromuscular system is what makes a lot of these responses to exercise so individual. Where you know, and, and we've seen this firsthand where Jacques came over to the UK and we did like the force and the nervous system. Um, I don't know if you guys did that, but I, I was on that where we actually got to see this in person where he'd put, I think he put a couple of different people on a leg extension and their like the recruitment of their quads completely like was completely different between the two so one guy 
recruited more like vastus medialist and lateralist. And then as the set went on, that kind of changed and he got a bit more lateralist come in. The other guy went on and he got loads of vastus lateralist, loads of rec fem and just never didn't, we didn't really see his vastus medialist kind of come into play much. Um, so it was like, and then coincidentally that guy had a smaller vastus medialis and you know so it was like all these things make up that the behavior of that new must system in terms of how it decides to recruit these tissues around the joints changes between person to person to person is and is going to be responsible for a lot of the results we'll see potentially um but again that's that's the annoying thing of why we have to measure it um when we want to be specific about these sort of things but then also begs the question of we've got to be very tentative with the conclusions we draw from studies in the areas, you know, where they haven't, and it's quite a, it's, a, it's, it's borderline crap argument to fall back on. But I said it the other day to someone where they were like, well, the research says that X, Y, Z. So how can you tell me about this, you know, this guy who's seemingly getting different results? And I was like, with all due respect, the guy in this picture wasn't in any of those studies. And that sounds like a crap argument, but it's true. Like he wasn't in the studies and our clients aren't in the studies. So while we've got this data that's representing results for a particular population, you've got to remember that that's that's kind of giving us an indication of what can happen in a group of people. But if you're not in that group of people, it also careful that, with argument, what about. that argument also gets a little bit annoying yeah. in the sense of we get where it's coming from and we shouldn't be dismissive of research. But uh-huh. all of the principles we base exercise on are more underpinned than any research paper you want to show me. Newtonian mechanics goes way back and is way more underpinned than any EMG thing you want to pull out your ass. So when we talk about moment arms and the force and torque demands that are being placed on stuff, that is better evidence than anything else. Mm. I will debate anyone who wants to come and have that as a conversation and I'll demo it with Meccano. Physics doesn't have bias. Physics is just physics. Yeah. (laughs) You can't do it. It's impossible to deny. You're not going to and we, and we need to marry the two and you go, okay, like we can marry the physics of what's happening like physiologically, that's awesome, but it's hard to do. Um, but it, it doesn't mean dismiss all the stuff that doesn't account for physics. It just means be tentative with the conclusions you draw and use that to kind of involve your own kind of experiments that you can then run with yourselves, run with your clients and just assume that you're potentially going to see different outcomes. That's what most researchers do in these scenarios anyway, all these studies that people read. Um, you read like, the, re- the the introduction, the researchers are like, yeah, we hypothesize that such and such can happen and then they do it. And they're like, oh, well, this completely different thing happened and they don't get pissed off about it. They're just like, oh, that's just giving yeah, me a question. It's, it's usually down to the people that read the research and misinterpret it that then kind of get, you know, pulled. Yeah. I'm asking for citations of 16 months natural body movement. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly said things kind of in the past of like asking for that kind of research stuff and I get it, but... Yeah which is leaving stuff out because even if you want to come at it from that research perspective i want you to answer this question for yourselves and just go okay a good study aims to control for every variable but one ideally that's the gold standard everyone's aiming at no one gets there but that's what you're aiming at well if we're not accounting for the physics of the machine or the speed we lift or a whole bunch of these other stuff that you're going to hear us talk about quite a lot and I promise you, these papers do not. Luke's found one, right, that he got really happy about the other day. And it was from 1991 uh, that actually started to account for some of this stuff. But it's like, okay, how can you tell me that this paper reaches the conclusion it does definitively? I'm not saying it actually doesn't. It might be that these other things don't matter. That's a plausible hypothesis, too. But if your job of science is to control for every variable but one, and you haven't control for these, well, then it's a perfectly reasonable thing for me to go, okay, well, then your scientific rigor was lacking, yeah. in which case, go back and do it again. <laughs> and that's, that's what this paper did, which is quite cool, was looking at the effect of, you know, what was supposed to say to the influence of what they term meometric and pleometric muscle action, which is the same as saying concentric and eccentric muscle action on the development of DOM, delayed onset muscle soreness DOMs. And they came to a completely different conclusion that everyone else has come to because they accounted for these things. And they were like, well, actually, this is a big area that people have missed. The speed people are moving at, the amount of force that the tissue is having to generate as a result. So let's account for that. Oh, look, like it appears that eccentric contractions aren't responsible for DOMS. It's actually the amount of force that's put through the tissue, which tends to be greater on eccentric because people don't control it. And you're like, oh, so all that. Re-, and they go through the previous research that has said that eccentrics do 
seem to be. And if you're, you're hearing that, like, how could you conceptualize that? Well, if I lay you on the ground and I put a 10 kilo dumbbell on you, you require a certain amount of force. You could probably deal with that. If I raise it up, I don't know, half a meter off the floor and drop it onto you, when it hits you, it hits you with loads more force and your body has to respond to that. The same principles are at play when we think about these eccentrics. The force I have to come up with is contingent on the speed that thing was traveling when I had to stop it. Exactly. We need to control for those variables. Yeah, and it was so. It's, and and the, the the interesting thing was in the like the introduction bit of the paper was when they went through like five major studies that have looked into it that people commonly reference and go, well, these are the guys that say these are the main studies that came out that said eccentrics cause muscle damage and cause doms and you're like well actually and they go through and they say well they didn't account for this they didn't talk about the speed of movement they didn't talk about the tempo there was none of that stuff referenced and they said well until they do that don't really know what they actually consider as you'll see in some of the videos we've got coming out the speed of movement has to depend on the kit you're using yeah. on different types of pulley system or machine it's not the same so we can't even speak about speed of movement as though that's a universal as though that university affects all force demands equally it doesn't yeah, or volume parameters and stuff like that and how that's going to be like you know an effective thing to look at when it comes to what you're using and how you're producing that volume relative to the kit that you're on you know that kind of way so these things need to be drawn into consideration in the conversation i think a lot of people are going to bring up the thing and say, like, oh that's overkill it's like no it's not it's physics <laughs> it's also not overkill it's no, if no. You, if you, like the, it's physics for one but if you're working as an exercise professional you need to know that stuff because that's they like science, oh, they did it too rigorously. That's not a criticism of science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're too thorough in their investigation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I said this someone the other day. I said this someone the other day that there's like a, a group of where there's a, there's becoming like a, a movement, let's say, of people in the fitness industry of are trying to dumb things down to a basic level and say, well, this is all you need to know, and you know, da 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 da. da. And it tends to be some stuff, and that's fine, but there's also this movement which we're trying to be a part of, which is basically trying to say, actually, these are the other things you need to understand, and it goes a bit deeper than that. And at the moment, we you know that group of, oh, it goes a bit deeper, is probably smaller, but it's getting bigger. And in a few years' time, I guarantee, and this is me going on record, that there is going to be a huge disparity in the fitness industry between what makes a true exercise professional and what makes just the run-of-the-mill guy who's happy to do the bare minimum. And it comes from learning this stuff, and it, it you know, it's, it might be initially for some people, oh, that's relatively tricky to understand, but like, well, that's part of why it's fun you know challenge is good and learning is good and that's you know there's a lot of in you know you look at the people in the the all these other industries in the world you know they go through a lot of training and experience and go into some pretty complex shit when they have to and that part of the reason why they're very good um there's also that subconscious element of calling your own position into question when you accept that you don't know yeah. something uh, and it's part of that that quest for mastery um, which is you know is a, is a big thing of you know having to question your own biases and learn new stuff but but it's a thing of you know give it a few years and, and it will be quite obvious who's very very good at this sort of stuff and their job of being an exercise professional and who's not and that's why it's worth doing um, because they will then be those will be the people that can then charge more and separate themselves you know the, separate the men from the boys so to speak um, and it's yeah it's cool stuff and it makes you more responsible yeah. which is i don't know that was a really odd way to end that thing of closed this started on a closed chain thing but <laughs> well, it, yeah but that's i mean it's a good question because it is a it you know it challenges the bias of what at the moment people would use that for of oh, if i do that i'll get more caught and you're like well actually we don't know you yeah know, we will get a sensation but we there's a there's a thing i'm doing on the whiteboard behind me of how there's so many sensations we get in training that we need to probably step back and try and make sense of more than just go first hand well that equates to such and such you know if i get this sensation it means i'm doing more work you're like not necessarily like i'm aroused what does that mean say again if i'm aroused what does that mean <laughs> i just get really turned on yeah. So when people, yeah so when people you know but in, in the context of exercise again you know i put a plate under my toes during an rdl and i get the stretch therefore i'm doing more work yeah. and you know, you're like, tell me yeah. how that works. I didn't know your hamstrings went down, attached onto your feet. They make well, you don't know your anatomy. They do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the first time, first time I told the client that, that I go, that, you know, that's more likely your sciatic nerve stretching. And their answer was, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's <laughs> the best thing ever. Yeah. But it's, and that's the thing. It's like, 
you know, these are where people so often go off sensation. Shall we, uh, shall we roll to another question or we're going to speak? Yes, I mean, the, 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 some of these Q&A sort of things will probably be focused on two or three smaller questions or bigger questions, I should say. Um, but yeah, I hope that answers that question. We don't know. So now neither do you. 40 minutes to get that. <laughs> But that's part of the thing. That's why it's cool to discuss this stuff. And yeah. it, so. um, anyway, what, what's the next question we've got? You guys got a good one on hand or are we going to go with the Ross? I got a really cool one, um, which is a guy asked on prep, just to kind of go from a slight tangent, we jump back in. On prep, should I be focused more on volume or intensity within my training? Now, like, I'll meet this question with a little bit of friction because a lot of people... Obviously, intensity, mate. Move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the... That is implied, it implies that they're two are divorced from one another. Do you know that kind of way when like they're not they're not these two different things that you chase within your sessions. Do you know, like you accrue volume and you train with intensity, and intensity is generally referred back to the load that you're using or kind of that kind of thing. But like you need to understand that like you're trying to continue to train with as much intensity as you can across your specific volume parameter or your ability to generate that volume, and that. In reality, that goal should not really change despite what your goal is at that current time. Now, when you get super, super close to your show, there are certain levels of fatigue you want to manage. There are certain things you want to stay on top of. There are certain risks you run with the proximity you actually show based on the condition that you're in and the kind of the down regulation and certain processes and things that you can have at that point. But you should always still, for the most part, be trying to train with as much intensity as you can with the volume that you've been given across your program. So like, it's not the kind of thing that you want to kind of say, okay, I'm going for one or the other because like, it's just that they're not mutually exclusive from one another you know that kind of way and you know trying to divorce the two of them just literally just takes away from exactly what you're trying to do within any training session obviously i have different things that i speak about when i talk about volume and intensity in general and kind of how we need to think about you know some of this a little bit more internal but i do understand where the question has come from like they're not divorced from one another continue to train as hard as you can this as much intensity as you can possibly do so across the volume parameters that you've been set by either yourself or your coach yeah. and it goes back to post you did the other day the stuff we've just talked about um and a podcast i went on a podcast so i was on vaughan wilson's podcast give it the beans um a while ago and that was when i first talked about this and kind of he asked he got me on there and he asked me about periodization and volume and i was like i'm gonna go off on a tangent here that people won't expect and probably not heard and it's how do we even define volume exactly And, and and it comes back to the stuff we just talked about and largely it depends on these physical considerations of, you know, how fast am I moving, you know, moving the object and, and what does that force, what's that giving my nervous system to deal with? Cause that's what we're trying to do um, in all these situations, we're trying to give our neuromuscular system something to deal with. And there's depending on how we execute something depends on how that those signals get taken up by the, or taken in by the body, whatever it is. And an easy way to visualize it is that speed of movement thing. Like if we had someone doing, and it doesn't mean do everything slowly, but it's just a way to illustrate it. We had someone doing a bicep curl with 10 kilos and they were doing it super, super slowly, you know, moving with a lot of control that, that dumbbells wanting to, you know, it's not wanting to fly up. It's not wanting to fly to the floor with like greater speed because we're not accelerating it through space. So they're kind of fully in control they're dealing with a relatively consistent load through that, which is probably what we'd then use to calculate, okay, when we've done X amount of sets, X amount of reps, how much force is actually, you know, how much load have you lifted, which is what people do. Um, but then if we had someone again, same scenario, bicep curl using 10 kilos and they're just fucking lobbing that thing up and down really quickly, you know, that 10 kilos is changing in terms of what it's weighing based on the speed they're moving at. And again, Paul and I did some videos with, um, you know, the, going through different pulley systems and that illustrates it as well that it can change depending on the machine you're in and all this stuff but those two on paper if we just went oh yeah i give my client three sets of 10 but i haven't given them tempo prescriptions whatever it is you know on paper they've both done three sets of 10 but when we look at it in those scenarios of considering the object they're moving the speed they're moving it at we've gone well, actually what their neuromuscular system is dealing with in this scenario is vastly different which is probably going to equate to a completely different you know response internally and that's where it becomes tricky on you know when someone goes through a prep and says should i volume should i focus on volume or intensity you've got to be you know clear on what you mean by volume in that first i think one of the things we could potentially say that might become slightly more useful maybe rather than 
Thanks, mate. <laughs> but the boys are right to, to, to pick this stuff apart and go, look, we can't define one without the other to some degree. Um, but is that we do have, if you look at overtraining as a, as a feature, it tends to be associated with volume more than intensity to some degree. Again, we've got that problem. But most of us have helped move a super heavy fridge or car or something, especially if we weren't, you know, we didn't train, just we had to move this heavy object once. And it was really hard. But you didn't wake up dying the next day from your 20-second exertion. You weren't sore all over and buggered. It tends to be the repeated exposure to those higher amounts. So now there's absolutely a relationship of those things. I'm pretty sure if I just did bicep curls with my just the weight of my arm, but I did it for 24 hours. I'm pretty sure that's going to really start burning low intensity, but challenge, challenge proposed. Challenge exactly. It was really boring. Um, so because of our, and again, this is dependent on so many things, but our recovery capacity is generally going to trend downwards as we go through a prep. And so the volume we can handle without being a moron still varies hugely person to person, still contingent on sleep and stress and digestion and everything else, but it's probably going to come down a little bit. Your aim is still to keep it where it needs to be for you. And that's going to be a conversation you have with your coach, but you might notice right, if you had a two to four set range, you might start to find you rarely get towards the four sets uh, mm -hmm. on this particular thing as you roll through. Exactly. And if you do, you're going to start taking away from the rest of the exercises within the session. You know, you want to try and manage that kind of session architecture as much as you can, you know, and just kind of, stay on top of that kind of thing because there are like levels of fatigue that you do reach and you want to stay on top of those by the time you get to the end it's literally just a matter of going and getting the job done and yeah. breaking the records you know? celebrate the fact you're not getting any weaker like, yeah. okay i didn't get weaker this session sweet and then go home and eat some egg whites yeah it, it, that's quite a good point is something i'd uh i came up in a consult i had with someone the other day where we were running through like nutritional um you know how when to make changes from a nutritional perspective and i said you know, brought up this idea of having things on a graph and it was saying like, we could plot on this graph and all these different columns. It was just a, like a bar or a bar chart. Um, you know, these different stresses in our life at any one time. Um, and we could have training, we could have work and we could have home stress and we could have nutrition stress and, and you know, all these different things, lifestyle stress, but they would all kind of, some of them would, would include various things. Um, and you know, it's a case of managing if there's like a threshold that each of these can get to, and they're all our total allostatic load. And once that all pushes up to a certain point, our recovery is going to be impacted on, on anything. It could be impacted. Our, our training stress isn't particularly high, but one week, our work, you know, we we there's some crazy work stress. We're having arguments at home all the time because the missus is being a pain in the ass, whatever it is. <laughs> um, and so those two get pushed up, and then then you know the stress we're also dieting so the nutrition stress coming you know the stress from being in a calorie deficit you know because that's being in a calorie deficit is a stress that's kind of kicked up a little bit more so we have to actually modulate things and we got to think okay where can i pull from i can't change the work when i can't change the lifestyle one maybe you know that's not and so we've got to think maybe i've got to give this person more food maybe i've got to deload them from training and kind of push those two stresses down away from that kind of threshold and that's what we're always managing in those situations that's why the question of what should I focus on during a pet volume intensity, like everything we just discussed, you know, bearing that in mind, that's going to change potentially based. And, and like I said, Paul, Paul made the point about it being potentially more from that volume perspective when you can, if we have a clear indication of what that actually is. Um, and that's really going to be down to the coach to make those decisions um based on what else is going on in your life and it might you know especially during a prep that becomes a case of usually the training stress has to drop because by the end of a prep you're fucked yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of stress during a prep there's a yeah. lot of it's, a, it's an easy way to think about it but if you have that client and I, I, it's kind of what i've i don't do a graph for everyone but in my head i've got that thing post make that as an actual thing on the yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to put that on the board because I thought it's quite a thing. If you got to consider all these different stresses and know that okay, I know these three are up this week, so what do I actually need to pull from if I want this person to keep progressing? Sometimes it can be difficult when managing someone going through that to get them to pull back. Yeah. There's often a resistance because they want to be doing everything to maximize everything, mm. and having to create that conceptual shift mm. that actually pulling back doesn't equate to pulling back. It actually equates to optimally progressing. Mm. Is is a uh, is something people sometimes struggle to get their head around, but they really need to. Yeah, 
it's also very low hanging fruit people on prep like their stresses are like running out of spinach and shit like so it's just like you just try not to stress about running out of spinach and just try to keep yourself on like, a good level playing field you know? because these things will add up like you pair low body fat low food with high activity anabolics in most cases you know lipolytics in a lot of cases like these things are just driving 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 stress really really high like even anabolics themselves are like they're they're not state of stress just in themselves do you know that kind of way so you need to have all these things considered before you just start kind of like you know start i around. enjoyed the fact you'd used a very specific spinach reference i feel like this is a real story that's happened in ross's life somewhere there is a, there is a, there's a genuine story from a, a certain bikini girl um who may or may not have run out of spinach the other day <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that 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 hopefully is quite a useful way for people to consider because that's what it comes down to: managing stresses at any one time, and knowing knowing where to pull from. Like Paul said, some people will be resistant to that, and it will be very hard, especially when you got those clients to go, "Oh, my work stress is high," and and you know, thing, and you're like, "Well, I know your training isn't excessive, but we might have to actually run a deload." And they're like, "But that's my escape, you know. I need that to de-stress or whatever." And you're like, "Well, shit." You know, so you got to find the other avenues or give them strategies to improve the other stuff. Right, um, enjoy answering. So we've got a question here. I own a textbook that says the knee has two degrees of freedom and the elbow has one. How the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does definitely bury it. <laughs> yeah, so there's the, the, the way we went through this the other day, the, the elbow joint and that I'm, I'm hoping this is distinguished the, the distinction they made. That the elbow joint itself is really what we would consider the humero humero radial and the humero ulnar joint, um, but main like the real joint there is probably the humero ulnar, um, and the elbow complex is a combination of like all the, and the like distal humero, so the stuff that goes down to the wrist. So if we're considering the elbow joint, there really probably is only one degree of freedom. And there's this stuff that can happen here, but that's the radio ulnar joints. Um, got an elbow and a knee, knee, if you might be able to show it. He's had one attached to him for his whole life, so I would hope so. <laughs> With a pile of bones. Um, <laughs> so this is what, and this is the humero ulnar joints. We've got the humerus. People, if you're listening to this, click on the YouTube for this segment. Um, humor, so humerus, ulnar, and then the radius here, but this concept here, so the humero, like the relationship between these two, that's kind of the elbow joint. And then this entire complex is the the elbow complex. Um, one of the things you can really point out as well, that the, the humerus sitting in that ulna is quite a deep-ish socket relative to the knee, if we look at it. And you're going to see a difference in that wrapping round of the electronol on the humerus there creates quite a step it's not really gonna go anywhere like it's pretty sturdy and stable the knee doesn't side of the joint so this side so the humor radial part is very comparable to the knee for yeah. and for those that want a visual i've got a knee he's <laughs> <laughs> one it's a bit better he's got two knees he doesn't actually just one the, yeah so you can see like that they're not very congruent surfaces really in terms of that's a flat tibia on a pretty round. And we've got this, there's a little bit. So if Luke holds it down as though we're in knee flexion, we yeah. actually get rotation that can occur here. So this is the, really that second degree of freedom we can start to see at the knee. But that's the only position. So once we get into that fully extended position, the ligaments get fully taut. There's this thing called the screw home mechanism where there's like a locking of the knee, essentially. Um, and then we don't get any of that rotation. So rotation that would occur here, which is important because when people set, you, you know, you set people up on a leg extension, if there's rotation that occurs, it's actually come from the hip. So it's not their knee that's rotating there unless they've got a serious issue in terms of the connection issue. <laughs> but um, like this down here, there is you know, degrees of freedom. So again, when you're setting someone up on like a leg extension and if they're like rotated out like that, you know, and then they go through, the knee will always be forced back into that kind of straight position. But if the pad is obviously that, that will create a form of an extra form of resistance, it kind of fights that, that rotation. So be careful of that. But yeah, that textbook's actually right. Yeah. Although it would be worth pointing out that you, if you, you can't necessarily see that knee alignment just by looking at the tibia. Yeah. We have some torsion and stuff. So there are ways of assessing whether or not that's staying where we want it to do. 
Uh, I think there's a video on that on the YouTube. Go through the leg extension, is there? And don't look at the foot when you're assessing that thing either, because you can yeah. invert, evert your foot um, regard and not change the position of the tibia. If you guys ever want to see some of that, if you go on Paul Grilly, type Paul Grilly into Google and look at his bone anatomy stuff, you'll see a bunch of side-by-side -side comparisons and you can see the structural differences within things. And you go like, oh, they're definitely not going to look the same when we stick this skeleton together compared to another one. But that, that, this, this motion here, so this is like changing the radial ulnar joint. So in terms of the proximal and distal, in terms of the relationship. What we're doing there is pace, making his palm face down and then palm yeah. face. So pronation, supination, that's not typically elbow joint, that's radial ulnar. Um, which is why we refer to that whole thing as the elbow complex, obviously the radius and the owner make up the elbow joint, but that motion happens at two different points, which yeah. is where that can get slightly confusing, but yeah, don't worry. But the knee has two degrees of freedom, as your textbook says, and the elbow hopefully only has one. Mm. We actually ran through this, like the elbow and specifically the humeral ulnar um, joint, is probably the closest thing we'll get to a hinge in the human body. But other than that, we don't really see them. And based on like the knee example there, those surfaces, like that's not like a slide. Yeah. There's a lot of sliding and stuff that happens in there. There's not pure rotation. Um, I don't know if there's a noise coming through, but my cat's like scratching on the door. So I apologize if there <laughs> it's like is. There's like a little tap tap. <laughs> I had a dude mowing the lawn outside near me a minute ago. I was like, it'd be good if you stopped. <laughs> I'm 27 floors up. I better not hear anyone outside my window. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys got, got another question? Yeah. Uh, have you guys got any? Someone said the importance of time under tension, which I think is a cool thing to talk about. Doesn't matter at all. Fuck off. Yeah. It was like, like time and attention, I suppose, is kind of one of those things that I think back in the day was just given like so much like this is the thing that we must all pay attention to. I think we can thank Pollockin for that. He loved a little bit of time under tension. He loved there is a there is a point to i think why it's useful is people you know if i get more time under tension typically they'll so you associate that with getting more fatigue in the tissue and things like that which is what will happen i think um, total time really then i suppose yeah, it's like the time that's the thing like we could go through a set where you're doing a bicep curl and just doing fucking stupid fast contractions and, and like you know they're not dealing with you're actually not dealing with that much force but by like virtue of just fatiguing the tissue eventually that will become pretty hard and it's more the time of the set potentially. Breaking down the tempo, I suppose, if even that's something that you wanted to kind of copy the yeah. tempo oh, yeah. makes up the time on attention. The tempo in of itself has a lot of validity. Yeah. You know, like I think yeah. when one of the things I always look at people, I always talk to people about when it comes to tempo is even when you look at kind of like not old school kind of traditional tempo prescriptions, you'll often find that when you look at them, they're often reflective of like kind of force capacity within certain positions that they didn't even realize they were doing it. You know, it's usually longer time spent in those lengthened positions where maybe you have a little bit more of a capacity for force there, less at the top. And you'll find they are quite reflective. And if you kind of understand those, you can use those properties to kind of benefit how long you spend in certain positions positions pardon me and then kind of potentially actually change the profile of exercises relative to how long you're spending in certain positions or even how fast you're moving you know so you can kind of look at it that way but yeah. and I think there is oh you're gonna say something Paul? go for it mate. You go. i was gonna say there is fair you know the utility in using the concept of time under tension i wouldn't say it. um yeah. like you know thinking about it in relation to the stuff we've spoken about and speak about in terms of like tempo like what's the machine you're using what you know you're using a freeway where you're going to need to generally move a bit slower like maximizing tension within the tissue is obviously a good thing um but that probably comes from having more of a consideration for speed of movement and like you know the I think that's probably where we start getting those those blurring of stuff because when we slow down this let's assume we're just doing something like a a curl with a dumbbell so we all kind of have an idea in our head what we're talking about as luke said when you if you launch that you have to generate a load of force to get it going but then once it's going i could almost let go of that thing and then have to recatch it on the way back down which means the sensation of feeling like i'm continually exposed to a force demand is really different than if i slow that thing down so slowing that thing down might then be, oh, it just means I have this force demand at various points in the range that I didn't used to have, gives a different sensation. And then people go, oh, it's the, that feels like there's a much greater time under tension, which it may well be. It could also just be that, oh, yeah, 
we're being exposed to a greater amount of force continually than we were just at this one point in the move when the force demand was really high, but then dropped to zero. This is a more continual exposure to that, that load. And, and it, but the, the, the side of the conversation where it gets very muddy and probably, I think, is probably arguably useless is when, we're in a lot of contexts when people go, oh, if I do a super slow eccentric, it's good because there's more time under tension. And you're like, well, not if it's like you were, you know, it's like a 10 kilo dumbbell and you're doing it and you're like, well, I just do six seconds instead of three and more time under tension. Therefore, you know, it's good. Like we, we know that, I mean, there's research that shows that there's a lot of that time when we just arbitrarily extend portions of a, like the time we spend in portions of a contraction doesn't really well, we wait too much. Um, Even on, um, on Wednesday, me and you, so we were demoing a pulley thing, but one of the things we did was got a dynamometer on it and measured, okay, if Luke pulls through this, it was something like we had a really lightweight on there just to demo the point. But as he pulled concentrically through this seated row, seven-ish kilos, I think, was showing up on the dynamometer. And then to lower down, but at the same speed as he came up, dropped down to like three, two and point something, because he's having to lose the battle to that weight. He doesn't need to produce as much force to lose to the weight as he does to kind of move it. So there's a whole bunch of considerations that make up the conversation of time under tension. And that, and that, that again, you could use that and go, well, actually, if I do extend the amount of time I spend on eccentric, I'll overall equate, you know, deal with more force and stuff. You're like, well, yeah, maybe. It's a, it's a diff difficult one, but the... Um, Oh, I had a brain fart there. I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> I had that earlier when I started answering a question and then finally it came back. I can't remember what it was, but there was a moment you're like, I've begun talking and I don't know where I'm going. This is good. No, there is something a good point there, to be fair. Someone keep talking, I'll just come back. Right, I'll wrap it in. I had some of it literally back in the day. So I used to have, I think anyone can kind of agree, back when I first started doing kind of one-to-ones and kind of working with newbies. Um, setting people reps all the time would mean that there was a start and a finish. And as they got closer to the finish, they would speed up. Um, nearly always happens. So if you're coaching people on the floor, you're coaching relative newbies, you're coaching people online who are relatively new, setting times as far as time under tension almost of how long a set should last, how long you should spend under tension within that set can actually be a pretty good way to promote control and to promote consistent kind of, you know, um, application of oneself almost throughout the entire set, you know, rather than kind of getting really all over the shop swinging and kind of losing that movement capacity. That could be one application there. I remembered. That's a good point there. Um, but no, so it comes back to stuff we've spoken about on the education board. So in the hypertrophy section, comes up multiple. We've definitely spoken about on socials and stuff. Is the and other people have Chris Beardsley has like contraction velocity. Like that's where tempo could potentially be useful, and like that's that, that's the point where like time under tension is usually maximized. You know, irrespective of whether we want it or not, in terms of like when you push a step far enough, you're gonna end up moving slowly at a speed where that you know even if you were trying to explode through the contraction like you're literally just like fucking trying to grind that thing up and that's where we've got this optimal environment and the tissue where tension is being maximized and that's arguably the time where it's most useful to do that anyway once you have like highest threshold motor unit recruitment like full spectrum motor unit recruitment potentially you're tapping into the biggest muscle fibers and the interaction between like proteins in the tissue that produce force is, is best um that's where yeah it's probably useful and that's where like it also and we can talk about this in the future maybe but i mean i think chris beardsley put this up not that long ago saying like tempo prescriptions might be better served to to be um in terms of depicting or like you know illustrating what you want the uh set the speed to look like at the end of a set so you might say to someone yeah. kind of like crack on you know based you know just like don't, don't go super fast but you say you know do a two second up two second down whatever you want to do but i want this set to end when you're at six you know when you've done three reps and it's like six seconds up six seconds down like that's as fast as you can go um you know oh that's actually maybe more of a useful way to use the whole tempo thing um in in certain populations and beginners and stuff i probably wouldn't go there but if you're relatively advanced looking to make sure you're moving slowly in the set and that's the point where you're like okay this is time under tension when it matters rather than going i'm just arbitrarily moving slow from the beginning of the set <laughs> apparently this is really good like no it doesn't really work like that a good example of how that fatigue builds up with that that, read that video we often use of James when you do like a 15 yeah. minute consent or 15 minutes <laughs> 15 seconds watch the whole video Ross Jesus 
Yeah, yeah. That's, we've done that in the pool. There's a video that for those on the portal that know where James is doing a nitro pull down and he is he does a 15 second concentric and it's not in slow mo, it's literally, but he's also not just choosing to move at 15 seconds because he's trying to yeah. maximize time attention. That's as fast as he's able to move, and he's also he's got time like forced time under tension in a situation where it's actually useful for the tissue. He's also crying at the time, which makes it way better to watch. <laughs> so sign up for the portal and you can get to watch that. Do you want to watch Jimbo cry? And <laughs> tell. <laughs> no, that's probably a good. I mean, we've, what, we've done like three questions there, but that was... The most important question is, who's the biggest nerd on the Muscle Metals team outside of the gym slash PT? Slash oh, that, that's <laughs> a fight between you two. <laughs> yeah. I say it depends on the topic, but it comes down to pool yeah. like 100%. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to the point, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself forward for the ground because so far I'm the only one who like sends research papers to the group, getting really excited about stuff. And they're all related to PT. He said outside of PT and coaching. Uh, <laughs> oh, in that case, putting me with all the rings. Oh, he's not going to accept that. Like, <laughs> anyone who's watching this, boom. <laughs> I want to know whether he's concluded. He has a Gandalf on an eagle. <laughs> His name is Guy here. <laughs> I, mean, I have this annoying habit of like looking up like everything. Like if I see, you know, I'm like watching a TV show or a, or a film or something, and I see someone or something gets mentioned, I'm like, oh, I'm look that up. <laughs> and that annoys my my missus. Don't watch anything with Luke. That's basically <laughs> what this is. Yeah, but uh, but no, yeah. If it's outside of exercise related stuff and this like all this stuff, then maybe I do not win that. Maybe it is Ross. Oh. I mean, Ross can pretty much speak Elvish. Yeah, I also have, I also have the Witch King tattoo. At the same time, like Paul and I, with the whole Star Wars stuff that's coming in there. Yeah, too bad Star Wars is for absolute pussies. So just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, how can you say I love Lord of the Rings? So. Yes, it depends. Well, just make sure you say you hate Star Wars, and then we can talk. So. <laughs> now I like, I like Star Wars. I like Star Wars. No, no, no. Here's the thing: Star Wars. Most of Star Wars is awful, but the Star Wars universe is wonderful. Jedi's are the coolest thing of all time, and occasionally they make things like the Clone Wars and the Mandalorian that totally redeem themselves and make you forget that most of what they made is a pile of dross. Because <laughs> right, that's a very accurate point. Whereas Lord of the Rings, generally, you're like they've nailed this in every sense. Like, yeah, because they did three. It's not the same. The whole legendary. Yeah, they're about to overkill it, probably. And be all, like, of, all of all of Tolkien's work is so good. Every single bit of it. I've actually never read. Yeah, like I even liked the Hobbit movies. Ah, they're not. Now they extended those way too long. Yeah, no. but then at the same point, I was just like, I was like, there's two ways we can look at this. They overkilled it, but there's also more time spent in the Tolkien universe, and I don't really mind that. I do get what you're saying, and I can give it to some degree, but they're not on the par with the Lord of the Rings films. That's because they, they intentionally I made them say that. I was just saying, like, as a throwaway, like, yeah, they weren't that bad. Like, yeah. Well, they intentionally made them more childish because the book was originally written for children. Yeah, yeah. The Hobbit is a more childish book. I also went in. It's also like a third, the it's, actually, it's probably more on par than people realize. If you're a real fan, <laughs> uh, you'd realize that they've made it intentionally for children because the book was written for children. And then and that, I don't mind that. It's not the pitching of the kind of thing. It's the fact they made a book that is the length of one of the Lord of the Rings books, which was yeah. one film each. They made yeah. this three films, so we yeah. should have had nine Lord of the Rings films. If also, you just, to just too much um, non-canon stuff in the Hobbit for me as well. Like Legolas, yeah. you don't actually see him. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, they make they make her up. Yeah, Tariel's not Tariel's not a real person. Yeah. Uh, annoyingly, I liked that side that storyline. No, I was like the main protagonist. I was still movie. annoyed by it. I was like, this isn't in the thing. How dare I like Evangeline Lilly so much? I was like, so do I. But I'll watch her in other stuff. The biggest one for me is the main protagonist in the whole movie died about ten thousand years before the whole thing. Azog is long dead. Like he's long, long dead. Oh, yeah. The main he, died he died in that war that they showed at the start. Oh, for God's sake! That's a shame. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a weird. I think, I think actually, I think he went missing, but then you don't Ross, see him again. Ross definitely went to the nerd. For... No, I did enjoy all the stuff yeah. where like Gandalf fights off Sauron and all this stuff, and I was like, yeah, there's some cool stuff. There is some cool stuff there. Did you know Christopher Lee's bit in that movie? Do you know, he's like, I've been expecting you, my friend. You know, he's not actually there. He couldn't fly to New Zealand, so they done that with a green screen and then put him in afterwards. That's really? Yeah. All his bits now, he's not actually there at all because he was so old. Who was the actor who was originally supposed to play Aragorn? Yeah. Uh, they originally were going to get fucking what's your man's name who does all who does the movie what's his, and he's in the movie with the face with John Travolta what's his name Nicholas Cage no yeah. way <laughs> no not even that because uh, Viggo Mortensen 
had to turn up like a week into filming because they yeah. had someone else there and then were well, like, they started with somebody else already that yeah. wasn't Nicolas Cage but originally they thought about Nicolas Cage that is if it was Nicolas Cage that would have been common yeah. and then um, Mel Gibson and <laughs> Mel Gibson and Thing what's his name like like Mel Gibson and Russell Crowe have now landed on the set of the TV series they yeah. Mel Gibson's Denethor or something um, yeah. I don't know because it's based in the it's based in the second age it's Delphal and Numenor um, so it's based five series like a 2000 year period I think the way that's going to work is you're going to meet characters who aren't based in the actual story and then the rest of the story that we know that's happened is going to be revolved around their journey of getting to that point I think that's the only way they're going to be able to have as much creative freedom as they want because they have signed contracts so they can't change anything they're not allowed to change a thing at this point I have no idea what's happening anymore. the Amazon TV series no, I got that bit. I was like, you just referenced a whole bunch of stuff. Where I'm like, so the, sec- the, the second age is what happens before what you see in Lord of the Rings. It's when the rings are created. And the downfall of Numenor is basically when the men of Numenor, which is kind of where the men of Middle-earth were prior to going to Middle-earth, kind of like the high, kind of like the Dune, not the Dune, but so the Numenorians who would have like super long lives and stuff like that. And then Anatar, who is actually... Do you know? Does anyone know who Anatar probably actually is? Anatar is actually Sauron, um, and Anatar then comes and meets the king of Numenor. Basically, convinces him to go and attack the Valar, who are like the gods, and they're like, you know what? Fuck you, you stupid bitches for doing that. I'm going to sink your kingdom, and that is the downfall of Numenor. And that's, that's what it's going to lead up. Well. Yeah, that's what it's going to lead up to. That's amazing, and um, like, uh, I just love how this podcast is finished like literally like yeah. mechanics prep mechanics yeah ross jumping balls deep into just don't ever ask who's the biggest yeah. outside of, outside of well, it depends what we're talking about i'm a bit like i like i'm a history fan i play some musicy shit i've got a bunch of other mm. interests have you guys watched the falcon and the winter soldier no i'm well, not like ross, there's a cool reference where like he Bucky, because he's obviously alive in like the early 1900s. Um, yeah. He, uh, he, he like, he says, uh, they, they bring up a, a, a Hobbit reference. He's like, yeah, I read The Hobbit in 1937 when it came out. <laughs> it's, referencing, it's referencing loads of things. Like, yeah. there's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of into anime as well, a little bit. And there's like certain animes where like, it's like these are Japanese cartoons, but in the background, you can see that your man is watching The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Like, it's weird. It's, it's mad looking. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Tolkien based, I think, a bunch of Mordor stuff on because he was in World War One and saw some yeah. shit. So he may he started writing the languages while in the trenches because the, the languages are written before the books were. Because if you like, if you if you've never done a podcast on this, I'll do it. I'll have some man. I could sit here all day. The, the, the battlefields of World War One, things like the Somme and Verdun, look like you would imagine Mordor to kind of look. Pretty much where he got a lot. Yeah, of the, the film Tolkien, which I'm fully, I haven't actually finished that yet. Um, I haven't fully finished it either, to be honest. That's one I need to watch. Very interesting guy, like really interesting guy. Um, but you get the like they show bits where he's in the trenches and he's, he's just like, oh, it's kind of like a dragon. Like, oh. um, Creation of the languages is the mad, mad things that he used to do. Like, just like literally just sitting there in the trenches, just writing these mad languages out of nowhere because he was a professor of language. At, I'm gonna say Oxford. Yeah, I think it was well, he, and he quite often got into trouble when they'd go into bathroom. He's like, guys, fuck off. I'm just writing down some Elvis shit. Yeah, he'd also change, he changed things. He didn't like some things in the English language and he'd just, he, he'd just go again. If you read some of his original stuff, he would change the words of things, like how things are spelled, because he preferred the way they spelled for him. He'd be like, no, this should be spelled this way. the best way of hiding dyslexia I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> he's got there's loads of deadly stuff for these like, like, you realize that's wrong no i just i just like it better that way yeah. you guys always thought that it's a bit harsh that dyslexia is like spelled oh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're dyslexic i'm what it's like you have a it's like list s a y and l and an x in there it's like the uh the list thing it's like <laughs> like people who know yeah. rolling people with a list you're like, yeah. <laughs> just gonna put this s in there do we could we not have called it like egg no, okay, good. <laughs> Every like someone just likes to like, open up a letter to get their prognosis. Like, what am I? I'm diagonal. Like, thank you for listening, people. We'll, um, we'll see you on the next one. I imagine the three of us will be able to get more of these done and hopefully we'll get some. We're going to fall out of the rings episode soon. And yeah, good. we'll get the others on it as well. So it's basically, hopefully, you'll see more of the team on this. Um, sure. But no, thank you for listening, people. And uh, thank you, guys. See you later, boys and girls.
Thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, Supplement Needs. They've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health orientated products, you can use code Muscle Mentors at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK, featuring their new Pro Prep range, a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue light, blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.